Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. This is Julie Henricus, Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am delighted to welcome Tony L.P. Kellner slash Lee Perry to the podcast today. As Lee, she writes the family skeleton mysteries featuring adjunct English professor Georgia Thackeray and her skeletal pal Sid. The sixth, The Skeleton Stuffs the Stocking, was published in 2019. As Tony, she's written 11 mystery novels and co-edited urban fantasy anthologies with Charlene Harris. And under both names, she writes short fiction. She's been nominated for the Anthony, the McCavity, and the Derringer, and has won the Agatha Award and an RT Book Club Lifetime Achievement Award. Her most recent publication was a short story at Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine and forthcoming is a contribution to an anthology inspired by Father Knox's 10 Rules for Writing Mystery Fiction. I look forward to discussing that. These days, she's working on a seventh family skeleton novel. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I am so looking forward to this conversation. Um, and but I'm going to start it the way I always start these conversations and ask you, when was the first time you said to yourself, I want to write a novel? Oh, it was so long ago. Um, I was in eighth grade. Uh, no, ninth grade, excuse me, ninth grade. And I had been reading and reading and reading like crazy since as soon as I learned how to read, which I learned early because my sisters played school with me and I was they were older than I was. So I was the student. Um, and just decided that I wanted to do my own. It was the closest I could get to having adventures. (laughs) And um, tell me about the evolution of building craft. And was it all for you always? Well, you don't write in one genre, but, you know, were mystery and crime novels always something you were interested in? Not a little bit. Um, I, I read some mysteries. I read Sherlock Holmes. I had read some Dorothy Gilman and, and a few others. But what I wanted to write was science fiction and fantasy because that was my first love. Um, and I, you know, I tried to write some fantasy novels. I tried to, I even submitted a few short stories in science fiction. I just wasn't very good at it. Um, I think because writing is so complicated. I mean, there's so much that goes into a novel with the world writing and the plot and the characters. So the first piece I had that kind of went success, that I finished successfully, the first novel, was because I was doing a writing exercise. I had a slow period at work, and so I would bring a writing book with me, one of um, Lawrence Block's writing books, and would work on that. Because that way it looked like I was busy, even though I had no work to do. (laughs) And the piece seemed to be moving along rather nicely. And it wasn't, you know, because it just started out as a character study. And that character study became my first sleuth, um, Laura Fleming. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just decided, well, you know, I haven't had any luck with the science fiction. I'll just kill somebody and make this a mystery. (laughs) Um, And it just worked. And I think, again, because the complexity of writing a novel, that meant my world building was done. Mm -hmm. For that first book, you know, I had a plot, of course, but I concentrated on characters. The first book, the world building was done because it was the uh, 
area of the country where I grew up and a lot of my family was, which was mm-hmm. North Carolina. And then with the third book, I could concentrate, or the second book, I concentrated more on plot. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, kind of learning the different skills as I went. So you mentioned the Lawrence book writing, uh, Lawrence block writing book. That, yeah. That's a tongue twister. Yeah, um, did you take classes as well to build craft? I mean, being a voracious reader certainly helps, but did you, how else did you work on your craft? Uh, well, I had a degree, I, my degree was English. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked at the, uh, the student newspaper, which gave me practice in um, writing to deadline. Mm-hmm. I worked at the public information office at my college for a semester as an intern. And again, that was kind of writing to deadline and writing different mm-hmm. things. And then I was a technical writer for 10 years, which is what I what the day job was. Um, so I did a lot of different kinds of writing while working my way up the craft. But most of it, some of the stuff carries over and some doesn't. It's more pract- reading and practice than anything else. Yeah. I think I've taken a few small courses. I took one on magazine writing. Interesting. Okay, I ended up never really doing that much magazine writing, but I had a character who was a magazine writer. So I used all that stuff for that. So it worked out all around. Did you have to unlearn some of your technical writing skills? Oh, no, because it's technical. When you think about a technical writer, you're starting a new project. You don't know what the product does. I did mostly software documentation. So you don't know where the product does. So look, it's a mystery. And then you wander around and you talk to people, the subject matters experts, and ask how does what works and what happened. And those are your suspects, just like a mystery. <laughs> and then and they lie and they forget to tell you stuff. Just like suspects in a mystery. And when you're done, half the time is fiction. (laughs) Things go sad. I love that. That's a that's a great way of of putting it. I I when you talked about world building, and you know, that's that is in fantasy and science fiction, and you know, in, in some some uh, mystery fiction, certainly um, paranormal or, or others, you do have to world build completely before you can even start. But you have to understand the world so that you can tell the readers and you have to make up the rules and you have to um, stick by those rules, which may not work as well in book three as they did in book one. Um, so it is a, 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 a different um skill set, uh, though we still world build in in fiction. Um, you know, I, I honestly, I don't find it that much different than writing in any setting, because, you know, what you would call in the contemporary narrative is setting or background or whatever. It's world building. Um, like a lot of a lot of the cozies are set around crafts. Mm-hmm. So that's your world building. That's, you know, setting up how explaining the, the exposition and how candle making works or how this works and working it into the plot without having to stop to do exposition. Um, it's really, and you know, whether, whatever craft, whatever background you use, I like theater mysteries and that may as well be an alien world to me because I've never been in theater. Um, it's really the same kind of stuff. It's just where to, what information, you know, you get to make up the information a little, but even in, in writing in the real world, you kind of make up information. You you glue in uh, towns together. You glue companies together. It's like, yeah, he worked for this company, but I'm going to put him over in this company because it works for the plot. But I don't really find it that for, that much different. It's just whether you know where you're getting the pieces you do for your world building. So you started off writing novels in the Laura Fleming series. How many 
books in that series? That went to eight books and then enough short stories to fill a, a, a second, a, a ninth book. Yeah, because that's how I first got to know you as a writer. You wrote a um, one of the Laura Fleming books uh, takes is centered around a production of um, of Christmas Carol, and I, right. I it just spoke to me on many levels, and so that's how I, I came to that series, which is delightful. Um, and then you know, but you also write short fiction, and you write in other genres, um, and you write a lot of short fiction. Can you tell talk to me about the difference between writing short fiction and writing novels? Because not everyone can do both. Well, I, I think you're you're absolutely right. Not everyone can do both. They're different. They're just different animals. When I was first uh, reading the writing books and trying to get started, and all the writing books I read said start with short fiction. You sell the magazines, you get noticed by agent, then you get a book deal. And it's like, and maybe that was true in, I don't know, the 50s, the 60s. They were old writing books. Um, and I kept trying to write short stories, and it just wasn't working at all. So I started writing a novel instead. So for me, novel was more natural, at least mm -hmm. for my voice. But about two or three books into that series, which I was writing for Kensington, um, my editor said, we're going to do a, a Christmas anthology. And it's going to be, we're going to pick six of our mystery authors, so they're really long short stories. Um, and, and you write short stories, don't you, Tony? And I'm like, sure I do. <laughs> Not that if it were publishable, but yes, I had written them. Um, but because it was such a long short story, they were going to be 20,000 words each, which yeah. is you know a quarter of a novel. Um, I could just kind of trim, 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 trim. Like, just do one setting. I did kind of a locked, not so much a locked room mystery as a locked place mystery. I had an ice storm, so they would be in one location. So I did have a lot of description. I had a limited cast of characters and obviously a limited time span before the ice melted. So that way I could kind of get rid of a lot of the excess so I could just concentrate on the, the one short story. So that so I did a couple of short stories like that. There were 20,000 words. And after that, I could keep trimming, 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 trimming until now I can write about a 5,000 or I can write longer, obviously, and 5,000 about as short as I'm going to get. I don't know. I'm Southern. I can't do anything that few words. <laughs> People who but, write flash fiction amaze me. So, you you know, the, you, there's so much to unpack there. And I think that it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity for people to think and to learn. No, but, you know, 20,000 words is kind of a novella. And that's, you know... It's, I know several novelists who love that length because yeah. it's just, you know, you can tell a rich story, but you, it's just not, it's just easier. It's more condensed. I, you know, my friends who write short are like, please let me write novellas. <laughs> like, this is just. Yeah. Well, yeah. I figured with a short, with a short story, like a 5,000, even to 10,000, there's kind of three things in a short story, which is, the, you know, the, the plot, the characters and the setting. You know, it's hard to do all three well in 5,000 words. If you can get yeah. two down well and, and the one's okay, then you've got still got a good short story. But a novella gives you room to do all three. It's such a good a good way of putting it because you it's five 5,000 is generally when you're submitting to anthologies or, or yeah. whatever. 5,000 is the cap. That's the top. Um, and, you know, it's just I have – I tend to – 
write really short stories or I write a short story that becomes the idea of a novel. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. well, I just started another novel because it's I can't get it down. I can't boil it down. And you do that so well. I start out with short. I very rarely have an my short story ideas are just different from novel ideas. I'm looking for something small. I'm looking for something that's just in one setting. And not necessarily a character I want to spend a whole book with either. Oh, that's a that's an interesting talk more about that. Um, okay, I did one killer called what was what's the name of that? Oh, Kids Today. And the uh the protagonist, the viewpoint character was this cranky old guy. And I don't want to spend a whole book with that cranky old guy. He is not a crusty old with the heart of gold. No, he is an SOB. I don't <laughs> like him at all. He was great to write about, but I certainly wouldn't want to spend a book with him. I can also experiment with kinds of characters. Uh, there's a lot of, of talk in the field about own voices mm-hmm. and writing from your own experience, which I entirely agree with. There's stories that are not mine to tell. But in short fiction, I can experiment more with different voices. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the difference when you're having company. If you just they're coming for an hour, you just clean the living room. If they're coming for a week, you got to clean the whole house. Well, I can fake a lot in a short story. I can do a someone else's voice. I can do a setting I'm not 100% familiar with. I can do historical, because historical requires a lot of research, but I can do enough research for a short story and fake it. Yeah. Any interest in writing a historical novel? So far, I mean, I've thought about a couple of settings. I thought about, I did a couple of short stories set in the golden age of piracy. Mm. And um, I really enjoyed doing them. But, you know, even with just those, I made some really silly mistakes that fortunately our, our fellow sister, Dana Cameron, was able to say nobody would name a boat that Tony because that's her that's she's an archaeologist and that's her period and she's like or close enough to it she's like no nobody would name a ship that it's like oh what would they name it Dana <laughs> <laughs> and just things you don't even know you don't know what is the golden age of piracy for those uh, that would be your basic pirates of the Caribbean era yeah so you know the all the, the Tortuga and Port Royal and you know, it, it wasn't exactly like in the movies, needless to say. They smelled worse, for one. Um, but they were also much more democratic. The oh. early pirate ships, actually, they, they voted on the captain. The uh, the quartermaster was the one who had the real power on the ship because he controlled all the stuff and handing out the money. The, pirate, the, the captain could be deposed at will. Interesting. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Um, I think uh, I love reading historicals, uh, but I, I, the amount of research and accuracy and, and you're, you're this, that was a great example of, of Dana Kimmelian and, and saying, no, that's, that's a slight error that most people wouldn't pick up on, but anyone familiar with the period would. And people who are familiar with periods are very picky about accuracy. Yes. <laughs> like I don't, I'm I'm very picky when I I don't use much in the way of guns because gun experts are so expert. It's like, yeah. well, that would not have a silencer, which, by the way, we don't call a silencer; we call a suppressor. And it's like, yeah, yeah I get that wrong. And it's not a bullet; it's a round. I know. <laughs> well, it's uh, you know, it's it's th- these details matter, but uh, it's hard to not. You know, it's hard to get them all right, especially if it's, you know, you're you're researching on the web or you're doing things. I mean, that's why talking to people is so helpful, because you can just keep asking them questions and then you find out so much more that 
you had no idea you needed to know. And sometimes it's the things that aren't even a major part of the plot. So, you you know, if it's a major part of the plot, you're going to make sure you know exactly how much poison to use and how and, and exactly what caliber of bullet. But if it's just kind of background, you'll go, oh, yeah, I saw that in a movie once. I'll just put that in here, not realizing that. Nah. I read yeah. a book where it talked about um, someone from a fraternity at Harvard. They don't have fraternities at Harvard. That's right. Yeah. And they have finals. Club. And I only knew this because I knew people who went to Harvard. Right. Um, at one point, I read a book, and it was an author who had lived in Boston, but had been gone for many years. And she wrote a book, and she was just her character said was wearing an, an outfit that she had had for several years, or that she a brand new outfit she had just ordered from Jordan Marsh. It's like Jordan Marsh was a local store then, but it's been gone for years. Yeah. So it just it was just enough to throw me out of the book. It's like you haven't been home lately, have you? Yeah. <laughs> well, and that you. And that's, you know, when we talk about um, book worlds and time and, and all those things, I mean, this is this is a tricky thing. You mentioned when you're talking about the people you read, Dorothy Gilman, who was just a wonderful writer, wrote yes. the Mrs. Polifax series, but also wrote some lovely standalones. I just she's one of my favorite writers. The tightrope. Um, oh, just one of my favorite books ever. Yeah, just lovely. I mean, I can't recommend them highly enough. But Mrs. Polifax, which I just love that series, you know, she started writing in the late 60s. And then she wrote up, I think the first one is in the late 90s or early 2000s. But, you know, it, in book world, it was like five years. I mean, it's not <laughs> it's not that much time. So you you can't put things in that anchor it to a time. if. I mean, she didn't know she was going to be writing that series for so long, but it's such an interesting thing for, I talked to S.J. Rosen and she was the same thing. It's like, if you add a lot of detail, it's great to ground people, but then it can date the book easily. Yeah. Well, wow. after a while, it starts to become historical. I don't know if you heard about the way Sue Grafton handled it. Because when she did her Kinsey, when she started A.S. for Alibi, she said it very much in this time. And then it took her a year to write B is for burglar. But in the course of the book's continuity, it started like the next day. Yeah. So it was a year in real time, a day in the book fiction. And by the time she got halfway through the alphabet, she was writing historical fiction. Yeah. Because she wanted to keep that continuity going. Ed McMain, on the other hand, was doing his 87th precinct books. And his books were always set in the present day. It didn't matter if you know, the present day when he started the series in the 50s, and now present day was the 70s. It was still, you know, the characters had gotten a year or so older, but he just, he didn't follow that continuity. So there's different ways you can approach it. Yeah, I um I also read Elizabeth Peters, and in her Vicki Bliss series, uh, the last book, she, she uses cell phones and, and you know, does yeah. things. And she just... Um, I can't remember what she called it. Margaret Marin gave her a term for it that she embraced, but she's like, you know, dear readers, you're right. <laughs> it's only yeah. been five years or three years or whatever in Vicky Bliss's life, but it's been, you know, 30 years in the in the my life and in our lives. But I just can't ignore given, you know, and it was the last book in the series. Given the way the world is, you can't ignore the people of cell phones. You can't ignore, yeah. you know, what's happening in Egypt. You can't ignore things. Um, and I didn't want to in this book. 
Yeah. yeah. I know with them. Um, when I, when I first was doing the Laura Fleming, cell phones weren't really a thing. There were still car phones or mobile phones, which were yeah. the big clunky new hitties. And then about partway through the series, I thought, you know, she had her thinking, I've really got, you know, she's hiding in the woods. I've really got to get one of those cell phones. <laughs> and I think she had one by the last book, but it wasn't, she didn't use it that much because they were still new and I didn't have one. I know. Well, technology has just, you know, you and I are around the same age. I mean, it's just exploded in the last yeah. 20 years. What's what's possible? I mean, you couldn't even have imagined, um, you know, when I was learning how to type on a typewriter and getting my, you know, electric cartridges of, of ink. <laughs> so, that I could, so that was a fancy electric typewriter. Oh, but, yeah, because I know. actually had the kind where you did the ribbons by hand. Oh, well, sometimes I wish I had those because I used to run out of ink and have to manually rewrite the cartridge oh, yeah. if it was three o'clock in the morning. Um, but, um, you know, to a point where you can Google anything and find out so much information on the on the Web. Some of yeah. which is right, but, you know, some yeah, of which isn't. But still, it is what people think. Yeah. I remember one book I had a you know, the car crash and it goes off the road and everyone's like, we've got to get everyone out of the car because the car exploded. Cause that's what happens in every movie. Yeah. Get the kid, the people out of the car. And then two seconds later, the car explodes. And so I was doing that. And then I did some research. It's like, that almost never happens. I know. Cars don't explode. It's like, what? Yeah. So I can't have, and I find it's like, well, my characters would think this because they're as dumb as I am. Yes. So yes. I had them rushing everyone getting out of the car, and then the car, of course, doesn't explode, and the cop comes around and says, what were you in such a hurry for? It's like, isn't the car going to explode? <laughs> no, the car's not going to explode. So I kind of <laughs> had it both ways. <laughs> Which is great. Um, you also, you know, in when you're writing in different genres, do you write horror? I have written horror. I, I've, I mentioned I'll do anything for a short story, and a friend of mine was doing an anthology of I've done kind of urban fantasy vampires, either romantic hero or just plain folks kind of vampire. But he wanted to really take it back to the horror. So he said, I, so I want a horror short story from you. And then I had to go back and think, well, what makes it horror? Because obviously walking, talking skeletons don't make it horror in my book. Right. I do that with the Sid books. And I'd had vampires and zombies and werewolves and none of which were horror. So I really had to think about what was the difference. And what is the difference? What my conclusion came to was changing the main character, that the main character becomes, and not just in terms of character growth, but changing intrinsically who the character is in the course of the story or the, the novel or the movie. Um, either they become a monster or they come just on the edge of monsterhood in order to defeat the monsters. Interesting. Yeah. So I so had becoming a vampire and not a very nice one. Again, not someone I want to spend a whole book with. I find uh, werewolves, vampires, and that that world um, so interesting uh, as a reader because I feel like I I have certain expectations or certain rules um, for these worlds, and if a writer doesn't adhere to the rules that I expect, I need to have a really good reason. You know, you, you can set up your own rules for how a leprechaun works, oh, yeah. but it needs to sort of have something to do with the way I think it works. And if it doesn't work that way, explain to me, you know, give me, give, set up your rules. Am I making sense here? It's like, yeah, it's like, why is this 
leprechaun into crypto instead of gold. He's supposed yeah. to be gold. <laughs> crypto leprechaun is a scary concept. He's got all these actually. Actually, as a writer, you find yourself kind of wanting to do the different thing because it's like, oh, everyone does it this way, and you want to put your own stamp on things, uh, but you still want to keep it recognizable. So when I was doing vampires, I was trying to think of so many good vampire writers. And I thought, what can I do that's a little different? And the way almost everyone I've read does it is when you first become a vampire, you have to drink lots and lots and lots and lots of blood. You sleep most of the day. You have less control. And you're just, you know, and then as time goes on, you gather more control. You need less blood. You can go out. You maybe can't go outside in the sunlight, but you can be awake during the day. And you kind of green. Well, what if it's backwards? What if it's more like a disease? Where early cases, it's like, okay, you drink a little blood, sure. And you use a lot of sunscreen. <laughs> but you still eat a little food and you can go out a little, you know, can go out part of the day. And you get more and more, the, lo- the older you are, it's the opposite. So that was the small change. It still kind of fit within the framework of what people yeah. expect. It was just able to have a character who was a, a brand new vampire, you know, growing into it. And you... I love that. It, you know, so it's it's within you're explaining the difference in your world, but you're still, you know, paying homage to what people expect. Well, you know, a classic author trick is to have some the fish out of water so they can explain things. It's like, yeah. well, I'm a new vampire. I don't understand how it works. Let me explain it to the reader while I'm learning it myself. Yeah. Or, you know, the reader comes back to the small town. I don't remember all these people here. Introduce me so I can tell the reader. Exactly. That's a great trope to use, but but you make it sound so simple. You're very good at it. But some people use those opportunities for info dumping. And that's not that's that's the part people skip. You don't want to write the part people skip, right? Yeah, or if you do write it, edit it. Because you know, that's the thing, it's the final book that people see. So if you if you've got to put it down there, put it down there when you go through your edit, then you think, do we really need to know all of this? Probably not. Right. I needed to know this to write this thing, but I don't think the readers need, or they can learn about it sparse throughout the the book. Yeah, you might need that for, you can save that for another story. Now, you've also edited anthologies and, and, you know, done that work. What's, tell me about that brain switch for you as a writer, because you don't, when you're good editors, I have found, don't rewrite your book. They you know, to, to what they want it to be or how they'd write it. What they do is they, they make it your book better. That's exactly the way I approach it, that I want it to sound more like them rather than less. Um, I'm kind of, I don't, since I had, didn't really have a formal editing training, but I had done a lot of workshopping. Um, my, my critique partners are Charlene Harris and Dana Cameron. And so we had done a lot of critiquing and, you know, I'd done some in workshops in college and had, done a like a couple of one-day workshop things where I had kind of learned how to to tell people what's good and how because you have to start with the good to make yeah. people more receptive and it's also it's, it's polite people need to know what they've done right just as much as they need to know what they've done wrong right um so I, I always take it very much as a perspective of these are the good things I think these are suggestions you could do and just like I would do for a workshop so I edit the same way I start with the good stuff. I give them places to change. I separate nitpicks like typos and and word tr- that kind of thing from bigger issues. Mm-hmm. Um, it works pretty well, and I'm also try to I let people argue with me. 
uh, in our first, and not always, but sometime, um, the first story, when Charlene and I started doing the first anthology, which was Many Bloody Returns, which is about vampires and birthdays, because vampires have so many birthdays. (laughs) Um, And the first story came in, and we were so excited. We're baby editors. We're like, and honestly, and I won't name the author for obvious reasons, we couldn't use the story. We didn't like it. It was really, it read like the first chapter of a novel. It also assumed a lot of, of knowledge of the, the person's series, and it just didn't work. And we're like, oh, God, we're the worst editors in the world. What are we going to do? Um, but then we got the others, and our, and our method worked just fine. I would read it, or she would read it first, and then we would switch. Mm-hmm. So then we would, so both all the stories were read by both of us, but we had mm-hmm. taken turns who got to read it first. And on that same book, was it that book? It was a later book. We got a story where we just didn't get it. So we made all kinds of suggestions, you know, would this make for it? And the author explained it to us. It's like, no, I want it to keep like this, and this is why. We thought about it. We said, yeah, you're right. And it got a lot of mention, and that was one of, that was, I'll name that author because we did use his story. It was Christopher Golden, who's generally more of a horror writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, you know, he was right. So you have to you have to listen to the be willing to change your mind, and you have to be kind because you're all on the same page. You're trying to make the story sound better. Mm-hmm. You've got to be respectful of the work and don't change anything without telling the author what you're doing. Use that track changes or, or give them a list and don't touch their manuscript. Don't. I've had an editor who actually went in and rewrote my book and he didn't or my story and he didn't use track changes and I'm like, what did you do? Oh, like oh, I just I and he cut like. A large number of words, like twelve hundred words. It's like, what did you do? And he he didn't understand why I was mad. He said, "Well, I've done this with all my authors." It's like, okay, not with me. Not with me. <laughs> you know, so people have different approaches. They do, and and working. So, um, has your experience working with editors informed how you work as an editor? Because I'd imagine you've worked with many editors over the years. I have. Um, I try to, honestly, it gives me a lot of patience because I try to, you know, sometimes I try to go back. And even with a, a beta reading or a, with people can point out the mistake and their suggestion may not work for me or not the mistake, the, the, the problem. And the, their suggestion may not work for me in fixing it, but at least I know what the problem is. So I can then, if I don't like their suggestion, I can make my own suggestion. Um with edit, and I just try to be patient with them because they're doing the best they can, and they're going to miss stuff too because I miss stuff. Yeah. Again, a good editor. I mean, there are different types of editors: developmental yeah. and copy editors, and and different. So, developmental editors will say this part doesn't. You know, I don't understand this part of the story, or you know, yeah. tell me where. So, it's really about the whole picture of the of the piece um and copy editors are about commas and word choices and you know that sort of thing and you need them both it's funny with working with authors you get such a wide variety of reactions some don't want to change anything and 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 i mean don't want to change a comma and yet i've had one author who was a multi multi best-selling author and we said it's like well you know we have these suggestions for the punctuation oh commas do what you want with them i don't care (laughs) <laughs> and she was the easiest edit on earth. There was one thing that we thought was kind of big, and we're like, um, would, what do you think about this? She goes, yeah, good idea. Let's do that. Like, wow, that was easy. <laughs> and then we've had new authors, newer authors, less established authors, fight us every step of the way. So right. it's like, 
You just never, and everything in between. Well, because, and I, I think that that's an important point as well. You know, when you're um, starting out, <clears throat> it is your words are precious and, you know, you, you yeah. do become defensive. And with editors or agents or whoever's giving you feedback on your work, um, they're, they're working to make this a better piece that can be sold or, or that's going to work for the, you know, it's, it's, and, you know, you have to remove yourself and say, okay, is this going to help the story? I mean, don't be precious about it. You know, be protective, but don't be precious. I had one, this was a copy edit I had, and I don't know, this woman was the semicolon queen. I don't use a lot of semicolons in my yeah. fiction, but she loved them. And, you know, fine if, if that's appropriate, but she would take places where comma was entirely grammatically correct and put in a semicolon instead, which was also grammatically correct. But why can't I have my comma? You know, right. it's just a style different. And that's what I try not to do, not to say, well, if I were doing this, I would have used a semicolon and then plug in a semicolon just because I want it. It's like, nope, not my story. Well, and also a semicolon, and to me, you know, I use them judiciously, but it's it's a true pause. Like you, it makes the reader stop for a second and yes. pause. Whereas a comma is like a a beat. You know, it's like yeah. okay, a beat, beat, beat instead of a pause. Rest of the phrase. So I actually that would make me unhappy if somebody started. I, that was where I my uh, my develop my acquiring editor. You know, I called him. You know, killed him. I was kind of in a panic because I was only a maybe my second book. I was like, is it okay to change that back? He said, Tony, let me learn to use stat. Just write stat on every single one of them if you want. Like, <laughs> okay. And if people haven't done copying, stat means leave it the way it was. Yeah. So, so I was happily through stat, 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 stat. I almost want to get a rubber stamp and that would have saved time. Um, it sounds like this was on paper. Was This, this was on paper because you have to realize my first book came out 30 years ago this month. Congratulations! This is my 30th anniversary. Wow, that's that's amazing. So you know, um, uh, yeah, and that was a Laura Fleming book. That was a Laura Fleming book. So that was when I, we were mailing out manuscripts and and getting them back and having to mail the the galleys and uh, you know paper and it's like, boy, the amount of postage and envelopes. I think we still got some specially made manuscript backs boxes in the basement. <laughs> you had to have your manuscript box to mail anything. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. When people requested a full manuscript, that was getting, you know, all those pages into a box and sending them. Yeah. Um, I remember, you know, going through to make sure the pages were in order. Uh, and and one time I had a manuscript where a page got misplaced and I had to redo it. And yeah. All that weird stuff. And the last draft would always be, you know, the copy edits you would actually make physically. You know, and I'm trying. My handwriting's not very good. It never has been. So I'm like trying to write as neatly as possible. Yeah. Well, I don't I, miss that at all. <laughs> no, I don't miss that at all. I will say for listeners, um, you know, some publishing houses and some <laughs> some copy edits are have been on. You know, in my most recent series, I've got some stuff on paper. I mean, it's okay. uh, you know, we're. I know I wasn't. I was a little thrown off by it too. But you know, it's. It's slow that we're moving completely into the digital world. I think we're there, but you know, they're um, mailing things back was never my my happy place. I've got to say that as as a writer, my last edit is always on paper. 
because for some reason when I'm editing my own stuff, there's stuff I will find on paper that I would not find on the screen, and I don't know why. But it keeps working, so I'm going to keep doing it this way. Well, I talked to other writers who are the same way. Barbara Ross, you know, as she's she has to see it on paper before she can really do that, you know, edit and help her think things through. And, and uh, you know, I know other people who never um, print things out, but I think, you know, somebody once recommended even laying the book out, you know, chapters out so you could so you could visually see, you know, where there's text that's dense and where there's space and how long chapters are. Um, there's something about paper that that does help the process. Yeah. And, and I'm a big believer in whatever works for you is the absolutely right thing to do. Right. And, and if you you're can working a new project and the old methods don't work, try something new. Try something new. So what's your favorite piece of writing advice you've you give and well, you know what's the worst piece of a writing advice you got as you're you've been on this journey ah uh, the best would probably be just to read because you just absorb so many of the rules um i read i read recently that there when you do um adjectives mm-hmm. in english that you have there are actually rules for which ones come first like you never say the blue big truck it's always the big blue truck and there's kind of we understand this because we know it sounds weird and people learning English don't understand the rules because we don't understand the rules either. We just know it sounds right. So it's reading. You absorb so much of this and you don't need to know the names of the rules. You don't know how to need to know how to diagram the Senate. You just need to know what has power. Now, some people need to go more analytical in order to bring the power, but you don't have to. And I think you just absorb a lot, so much from reading. Don't just read in your genre. Read other people's genres because you'll pick up things. Um, the worst, this one is so weird to me. Um, it was a very well-regarded writing book. And the author was telling you all the stuff you had to do before you started the book, which was to go on a diet so you were at fighting weight and to learn Latin before you wrote in English. Oh, I read that. I read the same writing book. <laughs> was it by someone who then later wrote books with her cat? Yes. Yes, it was. Did the cat learn Latin? Did the cat learn pig (laughs) Latin? I've never ever been able to ask, but I just thought that was such a strange, that was the one writing book I read where it's like, okay, this one's not for me. This is, no, this was a gift from my father. I'm like, sorry, Bob, no. uh -uh." (laughs) Um, Well, the Latin is interesting. Not that, you know, I've ever uh, learned it, but, uh, but you know, understanding words and all that kind of stuff, I think is interesting, but it also adds a barrier to people yeah. being able to write because, you know, if you think, you know, so so what this author is saying is that if you're overweight or out of shape and you don't know Latin, you can't write a book. And that's yeah, not true. <laughs> not, yeah. not, not from my personal experience, no. <laughs> Nor mine. Um <laughs> One piece of advice, it's, it's both good advice and bad advice, which is write every day. Mm-hmm. And that works really well for some people because it keeps the momentum going. And I try to write most days when I'm in the middle of a first draft. But, you know, if you've got a day job, mm-hmm. if you're a stay-at-home parent, um, if you're a caregiver to your, your parents, all mm-hmm. these things, it's very much assuming amount of, a certain amount of privilege that you may not be able to write every day. And also, if you ever miss a 
a single day because you got sick or you went on vacation, um, you failed. Mm-hmm. And so anything like that that sets you up for failure, I really try to avoid. If you can write most days and it, and it keeps your momentum going, that's great. But don't feel like I missed a day, I have failed. Or even I missed a week, I missed a month. Um, my husband, Steve, who's got a very demanding uh, day job, but also writes, he's a binge writer. Mm-hmm. So when he's got time, he goes, and he'll write really fast. But, you know, he can't do that every day. He can't do that every week. No. Um, Art Taylor, who's a very well-regarded short story writer, but he's got a child. He's got a big, he teaches. So he's got a busy day job, and he's got all his professional obligations. So when school's out, when college is out, that's when he writes his stories. Yeah. I appreciate also that you said that, you know, assuming a certain amount of privilege, because that's, I think it's, it's, you know, also if you suffer from migraines or you've got, you know, arthritis or you can't sit or stand or or whatever, or, you know, you have ADHD or there's other challenges that, um, that we don't always talk about um, for folks. We talk about job writing, not being a physical job, but there's, Still a lot of physicality to it. Yes, absolutely. And I think we need to be kinder and talk about, or, you know, uh, I was talking to somebody recently who was doing a Twitter conversation about writing a book. And one of the people in the conversation is suffering from uh, depression and is in a it, not in a great place and was beating herself up because she wasn't able to write every day. It's like, no, 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 take care of you. <laughs> um, you know, you're a human being and you're going through something and and don't do that to yourself. Let's talk about COVID. Yeah. I found with writers that, that they seem to be half and half. Half writers froze. They blocked. Mm-hmm. That was me. I had a real hard time writing anything during COVID. You think I had all that time. I was home. It's like, nope, the anxiety was too high mm-hmm. or whatever. But I didn't write much at all during COVID. That's why it's been so long since I've had a, a book come out. I've had a couple of short stories, but no books. Um, also some publishing issues, but those are boring. Other half is like, oh, right, I've got this time. And they went, and they wrote like crazy. But it seemed to be half and half. Yes. And it's like, if you were the half that was blocked there was a, a writing, uh, was doing a, a metal writer named Barry Longyear, who's an amazing science fiction writer. And we were talking with him and his wife just chatting. I said, you know, I really ought to be working this weekend doing some writing instead of being here at this convention. And he just looked at me and said, don't shit on yourself. And that's what I try, you know, if you're depressed, if you're sick, if COVID's knocking you for a loop, don't, don't shit on yourself. Yeah, that's actually great advice. <laughs> That would be a it's good rude. It's profane, but it's you know it's but it's, it's, it's to the point. It's true though. I mean, we're unkind to ourselves and unkind to other people or judgmental, and it's you know you never know what somebody's going through. COVID's an interesting thing, Tony, as well, because you and I, um, you know, we mentioned because we live near each other. We've seen each other at different events or, or done events together. And it used to be before COVID, you didn't think about it. You just went to a show or you went to a concert or you went out to eat. And since COVID, um, you you think about it or you've got to brace yourself or you've got to gear yourself up. And it has a it continues to affect um ourselves, you know, because it's it's something we've lived through and will continue to live through for a while. But, <clears throat> you know, it's 
I think we underestimate how it's impacted us all. I read a, I was just reading, this sounds a lot more erudite than I am, so bear with me. I was reading the abstract from a psychology journal. Yeah, my husband's a psychologist, he just, <laughs> so that's where I got this. Um, and it was about young people, you know, college mm-hmm. age and, and young adults, and how it has, you know, how it has badly affected them, even more so than us. But yeah, I think it's going to be our, our generational trauma. Mm-hmm. For I mean, we've all lost time. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was very was approaching the end of his life during COVID. In fact, died in twenty twenty one, and I didn't know if I was going to get to see him again mm-hmm. because I was waiting for the vaccines. I was waiting for it to feel safe enough to travel, and I got there in June to see him one last time, and he passed in August. It was that close. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, people who miss their weddings, people who miss graduation and school plays and proms. All of us lost stuff. As writers, you know, people who didn't weren't at it had lost book sales because they couldn't do promotion. Yeah. They lost book sales because they couldn't I mean, they just they lost so much. Right. You know, or they networking that didn't happen. Right. Or launched a book, you know, a new series during COVID that subsequently got um, canceled because the writer couldn't get out there and you know yeah. promote in the same way or do events or or have their debut signing you know I mean just yeah. even though that may not help with book sales as a writer you need to you know these are moments and you miss them yeah and I mean it's, it's no worse for writers it's better for writers than some because we were for the most part working at home yeah but yeah it was just and then now we're all reaching do we put it in our books or not Yes. And yes. I know that seems to be about 50, 52 people are like, nope, it never happened in my world. Forget it. Yeah. And others are like, yeah, I'm going to refer to it because it was a big deal. How about you? Um, the one I'm working on is post COVID, but I'm referring to the fact that uh, it's set at a summer camp and Georgia and, and her daughter's there and Georgia's working in order to pay for her daughter to go and Sid's sneaking around too. It's a live action role play camp, like a live action Dungeons and Dragons. Oh. Camp. <laughs> and so Sid is able to sneak in in costume, except for he's not in costume. Um, and they find a murderer and they're like, gosh, you know, she, and Georgia's like, has the conundrum as with all amateur sleuth. We're at a camp. Should I announce Try to convince people this is a murder. It's like, her daughter's like, if you do that, they'll close the camp. These are kids who have been away from their friends. And since it's a, a Dungeons and Dragons gaming kind of camp, we're talking about the nerds. The yeah. nerds who are isolated at home. The nerds who don't have that many friends. And I speak very much from my own experience, once again. Um, and they've been away from their friends for two years. Yeah. And they'll never get this time back because they're aging out of camp. And it's like, they need this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, so so I using it in the sense of because with an amateur sleuth is always the why is the amateur sleuth doing this and rather than the, rather than the cop, I'm using it to kind of propel the intensity of why she has to do it on her own and yeah. not bring the cops in. So I yeah. am using it. I haven't said anything during the pandemic. Yeah, I most folks I know who write uh, cozies are not adding it to their their books, but um, maybe acknowledging or moving, jumping forward a couple of years. So, you know, yeah. with I book think that's time. right for the audience, what people yeah. want in a cozy. Yeah. If they, I mean, I, I don't mean this in an insulting way or not, because I think it's very important. It's it's comforting. Yes. It's yes. a happier world. Yes. And I think we need that. And during COVID, we really needed that. Yes. 
And yes. I don't think people are going to want to be reminded for a long time. I don't think anyone's going to publish any plague novels, no. any bioterrorism novels, not for a while. No. I, no, 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 we've been there. Yeah, we've, we've lived through it. We don't need to read about it. No. So you're working on a Sid novel now. Uh, folks, I recommend you follow Tony on social media, on, you know, Instagram or, you know, because Sid goes with her to <laughs> different events and it's very fun. And if you see her at a conference, she'll have Sid um, with her as well. But, you know, it's, it's, I love the way, you know, carry a little Sid with you and you're on a train or something and you just take a picture. It's a sort of a lovely way to, to keep talking about, um, about Sid and the series, which is a very fun series. Um, so you're working on a new Sid novel. Do you have other things that you're working on? Um, I, the kind of next in the pipeline is I want to do a heist novel. I love heist movies, the sting and oceans 11 and Logan lucky and all these kinds of movies. Um, but always I have to kind of bring it down to some place that I would actually be as with when you mentioned Mattis to Dickens, because I wanted to do a theater mystery. And it's like, well, I was never in theater, but I was in amateur theater. I can do it in amateur theater instead. So I have to do um, the same thing with the heist. I have to bring it down to a level where I understand. I don't understand Las Vegas in the same way, but what I understand is high school parents and the, 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 the ridiculous extent one has to go through to get one's kid through school sometime, whether it's fudging, whether the kid's really sick, when actually the kid's just late on their project. Yeah. And that, it's all very kind of high kind of behavior. So I've created a woman, she's got a high schooler, and she is a semi-retired con artist. Oh. So she and her, high, the other kid, other parents of the kids, her friends, her kid, you know, you know, when you've got high schooler, the parents are your friends, you know, just like the kid's friends. And they're gonna. So there's gonna be a murder at a business next door, and they're gonna get involved in. So it's gonna be half heist, half murder mystery. Oh, I love that. But on the cozy side, because that's instead of Ocean's Eleven, it's Ocean's Eleventh Graders. <laughs> well, there's your tagline. But also, I just I'm with you. I love a good heist movie or, you know, uh, the story. I watched The Inside Man. Um, oh, I don't know. Clive Owen. Yeah, last week with the nieces. And uh, I'd forgotten what a good movie that is. I mean, Christopher Plummer and Jodie Foster and Denzel Washington. And- the show Leverage. I love the show Leverage, which is the heist a week. Yeah, yeah. But it's hard. It's a different, a different. Yeah. Beat. It's a different, It's you know, because writing a, murder mystery or writing a cozy or writing you know you you sort of you have your five suspects but writing a heist is also building the tension and and making people yeah. nervous i'm and, trying to, to, to merge the two forms i don't know how it's going to work but i'm going to try i think and it's bringing an old, old old con game stuff too because yeah like the original book that a lot of the stuff in the sting was based on so the what's book. the original book that a lot of stuff there in was the a book called the big store Oh. And it was a nonfiction book about con artists and how they did their stuff. And the the the, uh, the wire game that they run in the Sting is based very much on that. Wow. So yeah, well, I'll add that to the show notes so the folks can um, can know about it because that's the Sting is a great movie that once you, you know it's got that great ending, but you can also rewatch it many times because oh, yeah. it's still delightful and you know teaches you things and what an amazing cast and you know all yeah. of it and the characters are just fun to watch 
I love watching a movie where you don't know the history of every character, but when you see a character, you know he's got a history. Yes. Yes. They don't feel like they say, okay, we need a barista, stick a barista in. No, they put in a barista and you just say, yeah, that barista's seen some stuff. Seen some stuff. Yeah. Well, I think also in this thing that speaks to um, the actors. I mean, they they brought that with them and likely the director and things. So as a as a writer, you're you're playing the role of director. You're giving your characters their direction and they're sometimes giving you their their backstory. But when you're working with an actor, you they you know, they have backstory. They know how a character drinks their tea. It's never going to be in the movie or in the play, but they know that because that helps inform the characters. So, you know, I used would read those books that would say, start here and build a character sketch. And, you know, I could never do that till the end of the book. And then I'd go back and edit it in because I'm meeting the characters or I'm learning about them as they go. Yeah. Um, I've known people who will do very almost like a, a character sheet from a, like a Dungeons and Dragons game for each character with their age and their birth date and their um, their eye color and their favorite color and all these things. It's like, if I don't need it for the story, then I'm not writing it down. Because once it's written down, then I'm stuck with it. Right. And I don't want to be stuck with something. I might, you know, I've come the next book, I might need to base the whole mystery on the fact that he's colorblind or that he collects right. troll dolls. You know, I don't want to say that. Also found when you're trying to do a bunch of characters in a row and you're doing character descriptions. I mean, most people, for the instance, have brown eyes. That's just most people. There's people with blue, there's violet, there's a few others, but most of us have brown. So you're writing these character sheets, you know, eye color, brown, brown, brown. And you start throwing in weird colors just to be different. It's like, no, you don't need cerulean. Yeah. You know, it's like, so I just feel like if you do it as you go, you don't, you don't find yourself putting in stuff just to be different because no one's going to notice it in the course of the book that everyone has brown eyes. Most people have brown eyes. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, well, Tony, I mean, you and I could talk forever and, uh, and uh, I love having this conversation. If, you know, as we're, as we're winding up, what, you know, you've written different genres, you've been, been writing for 30, you've been published for 30 years, so you've been writing for longer, but getting published is a big deal. Um, and so congratulations, you know, on achieving that when you were 12, because that's, <laughs> that's 12. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Because <laughs> that's amazing. But what would you, you know, we, we alluded to publishing and, and, and the business, uh, you know, and it's tricky. It's a tricky business. Um, you know, what do you, what do you, your longevity what what you know what would you tell writers who would love to have a career because you've got a career as opposed to a couple of published books um just to keep writing if you have a series drop start a new series I'm on my third series I had the Laura Fleming's book for eight and they had a bunch of short stories um the next series which I loved it you know only went to three in one yeah. short story and then I started the Sid just keep trying different things um because, yes, there are going to be people who come out and they're going to hit, they're going to go huge with their first book. And, you, and maybe you're just going to keep going. Doop, 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 doop. Um, but the only way to win is to stay in the game. Yeah. And, and yeah. honestly, if, if you're enjoying the work, if you're enjoying the writing, then you're winning. Yeah. 
And it's like, you know, if you, if you're making, uh, maybe you're not making a million people excited, but if you're making a hundred people happy sitting there waiting for your books, that's, that's a lot. That's really valuable. Um, and just, just be stubborn. (laughs) I'm really ornery. It's like, there's nothing else I'd rather do in terms of career or, or sitting around watching. I don't want to take up knitting. None of that. You know, you can knit and write. It's not like it's, you know, excludes the other, but there's nothing I'd rather do with my time. Yeah. Wow. And I, I've been in many conversations with people who are like, well, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to hit it big. And it's like, but they're still writing and they're still publishing. Yeah. And I'll tell you, there was, gosh, was it my first voucher, first Malice Domestic, maybe my second. And I met this lovely lady, her name was Kathleen Dowardy. She'd written this really good first book. It was really pushed hard from Berkeley Prime Crime. Or no, it wasn't Prime Crime. That was just by Berkeley. It was their lead title for the month gorgeous cover you know with those cutouts and embossing and I don't know that she ever sold a second book yeah. and I don't think she had, you know both lost her you know I don't know why wow. I've you know I've known plenty of people who and it was a really good book too I loved it um and I've known people who like started after me and went huge and totally disappeared yeah. you look at the best first nominees sometimes and they've written a few books and disappeared as far as I'm concerned, my, my goal is just to stick with it. Yeah. And if I ever hit it big, which is less likely as years go by, but if I don't, I still, you know, I still rent the books and I've had fun and I've done exactly what I wanted to do. Which is a gift. Yeah. Tony, thank you so much for a great conversation and what a, that's a perfect way to end because you don't know how your career is going to end till it, it's over. <laughs> so like, yeah. just I mean, keep you're moving. You're going to be open for stuff because I certainly didn't come out planning to write that co-edit anthologies that was not on my radar at all but the opportunity came and it's like sure I'll try that say yes a lot yeah yeah I'm going to ask you to write a short story on Mississippi Delta Blues Noir and you don't write Noir and you've never been to Mississippi and you don't know anything about the blues say yes <laughs> have fun with that story <laughs> And also change your name if you need to. I mean, that's, that's okay. absolutely. It's yeah. like you know, if, if it because when the Tony Kellner books were, sales were dropping, it's like, yeah, well, who's this Lee Perry? Lee Perry will pay some more attention, and then yeah. the sales went up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know. Um, thank you so much, Tony, for a great conversation. Thank you. Bye, Julie. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.